Uh, Real quick trigger warning before we get started. Um, We are on this episode talking about domestic violence and violence against children. If you know anybody who needs help or you're in a bad situation currently, please stop and head over to the show notes for resources on how to find that help locally where you are in the States. There's so much more to abuse than being hit. Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. Diversity on Fire is on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Joining me today is Christine Monagle. Christine is the founder of Lido Advisors and Advocates, where she supports clients with pre-separation, divorce, and co-parenting issues helping them develop strategies on how to respond and manage challenging communications. She is certified in all 50 states and specializes in court-labeled high-conflict cases. As a mother and survivor of domestic violence herself, she is a fierce advocate for those in need. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. I already shared with you before this that This is something that I'm excited to have someone to have a conversation with because I know that it is a large issue. Um, So I'm excited to dig in. I usually start with kind of a common question and I've changed it up a little bit. So I want to ask you about inclusion. Um, So can you remember a time in your life when you felt particularly out of place or excluded? Absolutely. Um, Navigating family court. being a single mom, there's a number of challenges that come along with that and stigmas, shame, and it, it's very isolating. So just the actual atmosphere within the court, you mean? The process, the people, um, it is a job for them where for you, it's your life. It's your children. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So When you think about that, and I don't know if this is an easy thing to even articulate, but if you could articulate it, like how would you describe that to someone else in terms of what it actually feels like? You have this truth. Um, You have proof. You have evidence. You have truth. You have your experience that you know you went through. But in being able to communicate that to individuals that have maybe 30 minutes to an hour to spend looking at your case and they have 60 to 80 other cases that day or that they're dealing with in general um, to make sure that you're heard and that information gets through and that it's important to them as much as it is important to you is extremely challenging, especially when you don't speak the language. None of us, you know, grew up understanding how the legal system worked or, um, went to law school or were trained as a guardian ad litem or a judge and what they're looking for. We don't speak that language. So, you know, we're speaking, you know, mom and dad and they're speaking, this is the law. Um, so trying to bridge that gap is very, very isolating. Do you have an idea on what it would look and feel like? What could be done to have it feel more inclusive? Or do you feel like it's just one of those barriers that might not have an inclusive resolution? 
No, absolutely. There's a number of movements currently. Through my journey, I found uh, Tina Swithin, who is the blogger of One Mom's Battle and author of Divorcing a Narcissist. And she created a program called the High Conflict Divorce um, Coaching Program. And she uses a number of experts that in her journey train people on how to deal with the family court system. And I'd like to think that divorce coaches bridge that gap between um, understanding what the court wants and how to speak their language and how to streamline and identify what's important to them when you approach an attorney or the courts or a guardian ad litem with what they care about, with what they're looking for. So when you have 8,000 text messages and 2,000 emails and DCYF reports, school reports, IEP reports, doctor reports, therapist reports, all of that information, they don't have time to go through every detail. Uh, Working with a divorce coach will help you streamline that information and identify the patterns of behavior that you and or your children are dealing with so that they can help you and create boundaries and create healthy situations for the co-parenting. Okay. So basically there are resources um, and there's programs that are working to to find resolution here. Absolutely. And there's some legislation as well. Um, for the first time, the federal government recognized the problem in family courts last March of uh, 2022 when Caden's Law was signed into federal law with the Violence Against Women's Act. And Caden's Law mandates that family court professionals get training on what family-based violence looks like And that um, also they consider criminal court cases, family courts and criminal courts don't always communicate when considering custody, um, and also adding coercive control to the definition of abuse. I have so many people that I work with come to me and say, um, I wasn't hit, but, and there's so much more to abuse than being hit. 100%. Before we dive even deeper into kind of some of that, I want to just go back to you as a person for a minute. So in the intro, I kind of gave a highlight reel of, you know, some of the work you do and things like that. Would you share a little bit more about yourself personally? Like, you know, just just outside of this work, maybe just upbringing, family dynamics, belief systems, help us get to know who you are a little bit better? Sure. Um, So I had a career in the... um, development and management of science-based organizations um, prior to this existence. And uh, that afforded me a lot of travel, international travel. Um, And I got to see the world and I had um, two beautiful boys that uh, have joined this journey with me. I grew up in a large family um, with a lot of boys. So my boys have a lot of uncles that they get to play with. Um, and we have a very diverse family. When you talk about diversity, I have one of their uncles is, uh, a shaman or a corandero as he would refer to it. He followed the Celestine prophecy to Peru and lived with the Shibibo people and became a medicine healer. So I have that part of my family that's very strong, um, and connecting to energy in the universe and, um, you know, believing in all of our connection as, as people. Um, and then I also have you know, very close relationship with my mother. Um, she is a, you know, school secretary and her number one love is children. So I grew up in a very child focused world. Um, still to this day, she volunteers at my kid's school. Um, so she's a huge part of my life and their life. And we're really blessed to have her. Um, so family is a really big part and kiddos are, are a lot of what I do. 
Um, I'm involved with the PTO and creating the memory book for the schools. And I love to bake. Cooking is a very big thing for me. Gardening, going on a lot of bike rides with my kids. I'm a sailor, a scuba diver. That's uh <laughs> Whoa. Okay. So try to do it all. Life. Love it. Yep. This is what life is, right? You got to try all the things. Absolutely. Um, so, and this goes down a little bit of a different path. So you and I have had this conversation, share as much or as little as you'd like. But my question would be, if you want to share what kind of drove you into the work that you're doing now? I mean, I do see there's certainly a connection that you've brought up for mom and, and that youth is a very important thing to you. So we can understand a draw to helping support the health and safety of youth. Um, but is there anything else you want to share that kind of drove you into this this particular field? About 10 years ago, I started my own journey through the family court system. Um, and that's happened now through two different states in the United States. And um, it was very challenging. During that journey, I found Tina Swiven and realized that um, post-separation abuse and the type of behavior that I was experiencing was very similar to a lot of other women. And I wasn't alone in that. And it was jaw-dropping. It was almost terrifying to be like, oh my gosh, this is a thing. So um, to not have felt alone and to have found community in that, um, and then to be empowered by those women that had shown the light on the path um, and a lot of the women that I work with now, and that's not just women, I also have um, male clients, but to shine that path behind me to say that, um, just like the people before me, that this this is the way and, and will help you get there, you're not alone. Because like I said before, it is very isolating. It is um, very terrifying. So and it, it's emotional. And unfortunately, when you're in a court, emotion is not what they want to see. Yes. Um, and that's really frustrating because emotion is natural and it's a reaction um, and a very valid reaction. Absolutely. You know, for people who haven't experienced domestic violence, um, there's a thought process that often comes along that says, well, why wouldn't this person just leave? Or why would they allow themselves to be treated like that? And I think you and I as individuals can both agree that it's far more complex than that. But I wonder. Um, in your experience through the work that you do, what are some of the most common scenarios that you've seen or experienced as to why people, um, and again, like you said, it, it, it is men sometimes, but it is predominantly women, um, why they would stay? Well, there's a lot of financial abuse that goes into it, feeling like if you leave, you're not going to be able to take care of your children and there isn't any help out there. Also, because um, the family court system issues have been brought to the forefront so much in the media that a lot of people I meet with are just absolutely terrified that, you know, we shouldn't be claiming that there was abuse. There's a lot of um, research that's been done. Joan Meir from the National Violence, uh, National Family Violence Law Center at George Washington Law has produced a number of um, publications in regards to the fact that if you go to court um, and a mom alleges abuse, she increases her chance of losing custody by 50%. So that makes a lot of people just stay put and manage it as best they can. Usually the final straw for most people is when they start to see that their children are really suffering and they've, they've got to get out and they have no choice and they start seeking um, help. So the financial pieces is is big from what I understand. And interestingly enough, as I lay in bed this morning, scrolling social media when I should have been getting up, 
I actually came across a video of a woman. And she, I'm not connected to her. It was just kind of a random, random scroll. And she was crying and she was holding a $10 bill and she was sitting in her car. And she said, you know, if you're seeing this, it's because I've decided to put it public. She said, I'm trying to get myself out of a violent uh, situation that I'm in and I have no money and I'm trying to figure out how to kind of build up enough, you know, $10 here, $10 there in order to, to at least be able to move myself out of this situation. And, you know, you go to the comments and there's so much support from people saying, you know, I've been out for 16 years. It's doable. It's possible. I think the isolation piece is key here, though. We can comment, and I think that's amazing and it's empowering. It's it's important to hear. But if you don't have someone in your state that can come in and say, okay, let's help you find the resources, it can still feel like a shot in the dark, you know, like something that is not almost even possible to some degree, even though you might understand that logically it's possible. It might feel impossible. I want to touch back, though, to you said a woman claiming domestic abuse reduces her her chances of custody by 50%. Do you have any knowledge on why that is? Well, the allegations, usually the response to um, an allegation of abuse is um, an immediate response of parent alienation. Um, so they'll They'll see that the woman, they'll feel that the woman is trying to create, um, a bad character picture of the father. So the, when the father counterclaims that it's parent alienation, they think that she's contrived this, um, scenario and brainwashing the children. But we've proved through research and science that parent, parent alienation is fake science, that it just isn't the truth. It doesn't work. So, um, unfortunately too, just like we were saying earlier, the emotion of it, if you're a safe parent and you are fighting for the safety of your children and you're standing in a courtroom next to somebody who was your abuser, um, you're in an emotional state because these are your babies and, you know, the person standing next to you is like completely calm and well, she's always like this, this is what I've dealt with. And, you know. Um, so unfortunately, that's where they go, right? Well, this person seems more stable. The kids should go that way. Which is incredibly infuriating, incredibly infuriating. Um, okay, I'm going to breathe for a second because that it's, it's very frustrating. This is entirely opinion-based, entirely opinion-based. But how much of that do you think is related or connected to the society that we live in being very patriarchal? The, the, especially the family court system, attorneys, um, judges is a majority is a male-based environment. Um, our legislators that are making these kinds of rules and laws as to whether or not coercive control, um, you know, and mandatory training gets into, um, you know, the, the legislation is, is run majority by, by men. So yes. Yeah. So in my experience, I, yep. (sighs) Well, that's frustrating, but we can kill, we can just keep, still keep kind of moving as females, as women, as strong, compassionate, capable human beings. We just have to keep moving forward and, and break that barrier one chip at a time, right? Absolutely. I want to talk about coercive control because it's, it's something that I have uh, some experience with and I won't bring up specifics because it's, I didn't actually ask permission from this person to bring up specifics, but 
Um, I, I mentioned it to you before. So coercive control. I don't know. I, I probably can't say this. I don't know if it's worse or not worse, but I think it can be worse in a lot of cases. And it can be far more likely to be ignored because you don't have the physical signs. And it's kind of like a he said, she said. So when you're dealing with something like that, manipulation, coercive control, um, emotional abuse, what would be, if we're, if we're talking to someone that's going through that, what is their best chance of provability? So documentation, what, what should they be looking to do? So patterns of behavior. And um, like I was saying before, 8,000 emails, 2,000 text messages, um, unilateral parenting plan changes, harassment and insults, um, any type of financial abuse, withholding money, neglect and isolation, all of those things. Um, the majority of those things can be found either in documentation, uh, in emails, text messages, uh, if there's therapists involved, doctors involved. Um, Kids talk to their school teachers. They tell them all sorts of things. You know, any type of um, third party person, we can break those down into high level timelines. And then we can also even break them down into day to day monthly calendars and show these patterns of abuse. And every time there hasn't been a time that I haven't gone through somebody's documentation with them that we start to see the outcome on the children and that they are struggling and that they are having anxiety and, um, you know, stress at school or, you know, on an exchange day, the child will run away from school or can't be found or breaks down and is unable to get through the day and get their work done. Um, so that's where they can't deny that that type of behavior needs to have boundaries around it. And in a court order to state, this is how you will, you know, this is, this is how things are going to work. And then the other person will have some recourse to file contempts if those behaviors are not followed. Yeah. As, um, and I'm far, far from a child anymore, unfortunately, very far, but as, as someone who has memories, uh, from childhood, I, I can speak to as a child, I noticed a lot, you see it. And whether you fully grasp it in, in adult context is another question, but when you see it, it's, and I guess where I'm going with this is kind of the, the, the level of frustration of why can't we believe people? Why is it so hard for us to, and I'm saying us, you know, the collective society to believe a woman in distress who has provable patterns of things happening? Why is it so hard for us to believe her? And so much easier for us to believe the man. And it's, that's, a I know you question. probably don't have an answer question. <laughs> <laughs> that's a wonderful question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love the answer to that as well. That's one of the things that the advocacy that we work on is trying to get the research and the science and the data to the general public to support and understand that this, legisla this legislation is very important um, for all of our children. And even if you're not going through a situation where you're co-parenting or in family court or um, in a divorce or anything like that, your kids are going to school with kids that are. Your kids are being exposed to domestic violence, coercive control. And those kids are learning about that type of behavior through those children. So when you help this legislation move forward, whether or not you're dealing with it directly or not, and I don't know anybody that doesn't know somebody that's going through a challenging family situation, but all of our children are exposed to this and we need to make child safety a priority. We need to listen to the children 
that, you know, when a kid runs away and doesn't want to see somebody or is screaming and yelling at an exchange, there's a reason why, you know, where they're not just acting up for the sake of acting up. Um, like you were saying, you see and you feel those things when you're growing up and when you're around that. And we need to listen to the children. Um, they know what they're talking about. And a lot of kids are coming out now um, on TikTok and Instagram. Um, these kids that are being ordered to go to reunification camps with their abuser, and they're blockading themselves in their home saying, transporters are coming to get me, please come to this address and videotape and help me and don't let you know, don't let this happen. So it is getting a lot more public now. And that makes that is the one thing which well, kind of makes me sad, but also happy is that I think that the more open conversations, public conversations, the more sharing that can be done, um, the more pulling back that veil, the more progress has an opportunity to happen because it's really easy to, I'm going to use this term status quo. And that's, that's my assumption is like, it's much easier to look at a cool, calm, collected person and say, oh, well, you've clearly got it all together. I can never imagine you losing your shit, right? Like, but we know that that happens. And if somebody, I guess I'm going to use a really weird analogy right now. You said you like to garden. So do I. So whether it be fruit or a flower, if you have something, if you have something that's wilting or dying, or let's say a tomato that's getting brown on the bottom, it's easy for us to say, oh crap, what are the circumstances that are causing that to go bad so that I can correct it, right? Because you want your nice, juicy, wonderful tomatoes. And so we can we can easily pick that apart. But when a child is acting out or when someone is in serious distress, it's like, oh, well, you obviously just need to, you know, take a minute, right? Just take a breather. <laughs> like, why, why can we understand this in the most simple of terms, but lack the ability to apply it to real human beings? And that's not a question because I know... <laughs> I know if we if we had the answer more. <laughs> if we had the answer I mean things would be very different but yes I couldn't agree more yeah do you have thoughts on okay there's got to be a line it's probably super gray but do you have thoughts on you know what the difference is between someone who's really just an asshole versus someone who's abusive is there a line or is it a, is it the same I feel like there's I feel like there's a difference Yes, I think that um, someone who's just neglectful and thoughtless and just into themselves, um, it obviously would feel like abuse. And but they wouldn't be there wouldn't be a pattern to it. There wouldn't be you know a, a plan, a thought to it. It wouldn't be something that they needed to constantly have control. Dr. Romney is a great person to listen to. She talks a lot about recovering from narcissistic abuse and what narcissistic abuse looks like. And I was just um, watching one of her where she asks this question, like, what's the difference between a sociopath and a narcissist and really getting into the the psychology of it. And um, I rec always recommend that people listen to that when they're talking about, um, you know, recovering from abuse and what abuse is because so many people, again, say, I wasn't hit, but these things kept, you know, am I crazy? And that's why they call these people the crazy makers, because you doubt yourself. That's another reason you can't get out because it's your fault. You've created this, you know, this demon and it's you're you're responsible for it. So she would really be somebody because I'm again, not a therapist, but she's somebody that really defines some of the the differences between those types of behavior paths that, uh, you know, 
psychology label better than than I would be able to. Okay. All right. Good. So definitely, and, and I'm sure there's so many resources out there. And of course, <laughs> your language is is a lot better than mine in terms of utilizing the terms. I just use swears, but <laughs> but it's it's good to, good to know because. I think that that can get confused. And look, I don't want to play too much of a devil's advocate here, but there's always um, a give and take. So there are going to be people who we can use this term, and I think a lot of people will understand it, cry wolf, right? I think the problem is, is that's like a tiny, tiny amount of people that may do that. And for some reason, we're applying that tiny, tiny, like, oh, well, you're just lying or you're just crying wolf. And we're saying that's what everybody's doing. No, that's not what's happening. So I think it's important to understand what some of these differences are so we can pick them out. No, absolutely. And um, I, one of the first steps that I go through when I'm working with individuals is obviously identifying to make sure that I'm dealing with the right party because obviously the narcissist will reach out, reach out to me as well. I've dealt with a number of people that um, were the abuser in this situation and trying to use the parent alienation and I have all this evidence type of stuff. So first going through and making sure I'm dealing with the safe parent. Um, and part of that is being able to have radical acceptance, accepting this is exactly where you are right now. This is exactly what is happening to you right now. And responding with bitterness and anger and, you know, this isn't fair, stomping your foot, obviously is a human reaction when something happens like this. And it's very challenging and frustrating, but you can't stay in that place. You have to change the energy around it and you have to start getting strategic and you have to start making sure that your truth, that your heart, your children, your safety, your love is shining through all of your documentation and every word that comes out of your mouth. Because that's when people start listening. That's when people go, oh, there is a pattern here. She's not bitter. She's not angry. She's just trying to show the truth and protect her children. And there's, that's the difference in that too. Yeah. And it's, it's hard. And it's also true that the victim will have to navigate it with the utmost amount of strength and tact in order to get listened to. And that's not fair. And that's not right. That seems to be exactly how it is. Well, that's when we say court-labeled high conflict. When the court labels somebody in a high conflict case, that's making the assumption that there are two people that are being high conflict. So a lot of the work that I do is helping people not respond with anger and bitterness. So it's you know going from gray rock, which would kill your case, but with the yes, no, maybe, or not responding at all to the other side of it, which would be considered high conflict. If somebody makes an accusation or a statement and you go back, well, on this day, we agreed to this and this and da, 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 and no, you did this and you said this and here's that email. That's considered high conflict where you get strategic and you're right down the middle is where you state, I don't agree with your perspective on this situation. Let's take a few days to think about it and come back and talk again when we can focus on the best interest of the children and walk away. Mm. Don't take the bait. Um, that's where you're keeping your side of the road clean. You're focusing on the children. You're not going to engage in the rhetoric and you're not going to be seen as a part of a high conflict situation. It's only going to show and glow on one side. And that takes an immense amount of self-control, an immense Absolutely. amount of self-control, because we're talking about very high emotion 
high stress situations. Wow. So it was brought up to me. Actually, my sister brought this up to me. I told her I was going to be talking to you and we're, we're kind of podcast junkies, like all kinds of podcasts, but she brought this one up and we started going down this, this idea of, uh, she used a specific term and I think you'll know it. I think it's um, criminalizing the victim. So cases that we've seen national me- on national media where um, a, a victim, so so I'm just going to use a woman in this case, because again, that's predominantly what we have, a woman um, being an abuse victim who is now imprisoned for killing her abuser, Well, whether that be in self-defense. Well, I think it's probably all self-defense, but like having just having enough and that fear kind of pushing over a line, there's documentation of abuse, and yet somehow they're still in prison for doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Um, I had a couple of things go through my head while you were talking. and I, You are re-victimized when you go through the court. You go in if you're making an allegation um, and then punished again for your actions. It's like it, it, when you were talking, it reminded me of um, just two weeks ago when we saw a seven-year-old boy who eventually passed away from um, his face being burned and his skull being cracked by his father. And the woman was being interviewed on television. And she said, "Um, what good would I be? I'd be in contempt of court if I didn't let him go. And I'd been called, she stated that she had been calling DCYF. So in that case, who's responsible there? Who goes to jail there? There are so many pieces that were involved um, and so many failures by the system. Yeah, there there is. I I think this just goes to this goes to an overarching theme and it's not just in domestic abuse and it's not just in child custody. It's in a lot of things, oftentimes pertaining to when women speak up about what they've been through and it's the idea that when somebody tells you something, believe them. And like what you said before when you're when you're first interacting with somebody, a, cl- a new client, you do have to navigate and and pay attention closely enough to figure out which side is the safe side. You know, if they're adversarial, you take the time to make sure you're identifying and making that the right choice. Is there fallibility in that? Of course. Of course. There are really, really good narcissists. There are really, really good liars out there. So it's like there is, we, we can't expect perfection here, but we can start listening to people. I'm just going to say this again, and it just kind of falls in in line with all the other things I've said. I just can't wrap my head around why that's so hard, why it's so hard. Why are we, why is it so necessary to give custody? And actually, I want to go into that too, because you just mentioned the death of a child. And when you and I first spoke, you gave me a a statistic, basically, just information that I was not aware was so out of control, is that it was in the last 18 months 16, and this is in our tiny state of New Hampshire, in our tiny Mm -hmm. state, in the last 18 months, there have been 16 child deaths at the hands of an abuser, a parent abuser, right? Correct. Yes. And they were in the system and the safe parent was asking for help. There was actually more children that were murdered by the hands of a parent, but the 16 of them had had a safe parent or a safe person, caretaker, trying to get help for that person. So either through family court or um, DCYF and we're failed. It blows my mind that this happens. And I do, I do want to be careful because I do want to acknowledge that we are talking about the system as, as like 
well, a system, right? A function. And the system is run by humans. Okay. So Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that the humans in that system, we don't know what's going on. They have their own lives. Um, They have mass amounts of stress. I can't imagine hearing these stories day in and day out. Um, There's probably a level of compassion fatigue that comes around that. So I, I don't, I'm not saying that it was right. It's absolutely not right. But I do want to acknowledge that broken systems are broken for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, so absolutely. when we think about that, you mentioned previously, there's some some things in process trying to correct these. Is there anything that you see currently that's trying to protect this particular failure of a system? And when we're talking about this particular failure, we're talking about the reunification and or allowing custody or even visitation of children, minors, to an abuser? Well, they, the report that I had told you about was um, back in January of 2022. Since then, we've had a number of other um, murders that we've seen on television. But during that period of time, the state of New Hampshire created the DB Task Force. Um, they had an open Supreme Court day where you could go and speak. I actually was one of those people that did go and speak and they were asking the public, what do we need? What do you want? What do you su- suggest that we do to improve our systems? Um, and there were a number of items that they've put forward, and they do have um, the governor's committee now that are getting those informations from other states. So Connecticut is one of those states that's leading the way in having coercive control as, um, you know, as a part of a definition of abuse. So there's an individual that is responsible for doing that in our state. So we're definitely getting seen, we're getting heard, um, and there is research happening. But for the kids that are suffering right now, especially since the pandemic, we've had an increase of 70% of domestic violence um, during the pandemic alone. So, And there's a huge backlog of court cases because the court shut down and the court went virtual. Um, so lawyers right now, they have you know chock-a-block cases, one after the other, and the courts are doing, you know, 30 minute, one hour trying to plow through all of these cases. So that's unfortunate right now that people that really need to be heard and seen are not getting that. Um, you know, so like you were saying, it, we are human. We are trying to do the best that we can, but more needs to be done and we need more resources that, uh, and training so that they can identify, um, you know, what's happening and identify this documentation that people can prove that these things are happening. You know, I don't, I I don't know, um, you know, I don't foresee how we are going to make these grandiose changes until we finally make big laws and big restrictions and big boundaries uh, around this type of behavior. Like we do so many other things, but not, um, not, you know, making child safety more important than parental rights. And that needs to change. How do you navigate the compassion needed? I mean, so of course, I know that, you know, you shared, you've been through your own situation. Um, You have been doing this for a number of years. When I hear these things, this is just my personality anyways, I'm a little fiery. But um, when I hear these things, I'm like, so enraged. How do you navigate that? Like, how do you navigate having a conversation with an abuser that you know is an abuser, but you know you have to have a, I don't know, maybe have compassion with them or maybe just be super strategic. How do you do that? What I've identified that um, the person that is trying to hire me is actually the the person that's responsible for the situation. I usually just shut 
down the, the, the conversation right away and say, I, you know, I'm not the person for you and I, I can't support you. And because people will fill out an information form before I even meet with them. And the first consultation, um, there'll be a lot of questions that happen before. And that really helps maximize my time for the first time that we meet so that they don't have to go through the entire backstory and get me up to speed. I kind of know everything going in and what they're going to need. So usually they don't even have access to me before I get into that situation. Um, but yeah, I've heard some pretty horrible, gruesome stories about things that have happened to um, my clients and their children. Um, and it is, I cry with them. I hold their hands when they walk into court. Um, we do the best that we can. Uh, I'm not a therapist and I'm not an attorney, but I bridge that gap because so many people say to me, my therapist doesn't get it. And their therapist isn't trained to understand family court. And most people wouldn't believe that what you're going through is the reality of family court. And then a lot of people say, well, my attorney doesn't care. Well, it's not that your attorney doesn't care, but he's got 60 of you. He or she has 60 of you, most likely, sending knee-jerk reactions to whatever has happened that day. And they simply can't respond to every single person. They are not trained in helping somebody go through a life-altering traumatic situation. And I don't do it alone either. I'm I'm not a, um, what do they say, jack of all trades, master of none. I have a lot of resources. I know I've identified a number of people that um, I work with in different states and have access to when it comes to, you know, the person who is still living with an abuser and they're hiding money in a backpack in the back of their closet. I have a friend that happens to be a manager of a large bank in the area um, and will meet with that person in a, you know, the alley behind the bank and get them in there, get their first bank account set up, um, you know, mortgage lenders, finance people, you know, realtors and healers, people that, you know, it's hard to get in with a therapist these days. But I also help people rebuild a life. So they're getting therapeutic help. They're also meeting with me to identify and streamline like, okay, this happened today. I want to email my attorney and I'll say, well, let's level set this. Let's figure out, does this rise to the importance of the court? How do we actually strategically use this? What can we do um, in response to make sure that this is going to be okay for the kids the next time they have visitation with this individual? You know, so there's a lot of pieces to it and making sure that they come out on the other side and meeting with, um, you know, people that are going to help them rebuild that life and that get it, they understand that this is a challenging situation. And a lot of the people that I use as my resources are familiar with, uh, you know, survivors and had been a survivor or have a survivor close to them. So they're very compassionate around, you know, what that feels like and the, the shame and the isolation that goes along with it. So empowering those people to know that they can rebuild their life and take care of their children and they're going to be okay. But it's hard to see that on the other side when you're in it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and uh, as far as that that statement can apply to a lot of things. So I think if someone listening doesn't have any experience with this personally or super, you know, someone super close to them, I think everybody can understand that they've been in a situation that felt like there's no light at the end of that tunnel. Just take that experience that you have or that they have, I'm speaking to the audience, and apply that to a devastating situation like domestic abuse and and just maybe that that can make a connection cuz I, I talked recently about like having skin in the game um you know with another guest and just being touched by something 
makes you more aware of it, makes you more compassionate to it. And I think if you don't have that, it doesn't mean that you don't care, but you just need, there needs to be a connection. I'm a little bit rambling here, but I'm just trying to think about ways to not just bring more awareness, but to really touch somebody because people act when they're touched. We're leaving a lot on the table, but we do have to kind of wrap it up here. So before I get to the final three questions, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you feel like um, you really want to put out there or any particular parting wisdom you'd like to share with the audience? If you love a child, have a child, care for a child, um, it is very important whether or not your family is touched by the family court system or not. Um, your child is exposed to these situations and other children that are dealing with these situations. And I highly suggest getting involved um, or reaching out to your legislature or um, you know some of the advocacy groups that do the legislation for children, um, learning more and what you can do to help and push these things forward. Um, I know the National Safe Parents uh, Organization has state groups um, that you can join. There's also groups online um, that are private chapters for One Mom's Battle if you're looking for a community. Um, and there's things that you can do behind the scenes if you're in an active case so that you're not, you know, you're not seen, you're not putting your name out there, you're not risking anything while you're in an active case. Um, but at the same time, it's very empowering to know that you're doing something for your own case as well as um, other children's cases out there. I think that's really important to note because especially if you're in a situation where you feel like there's no end in sight or there's no other side. You feel um, trapped, paralyzed, and just mentally beaten down. Knowing that there's help and knowing how to get that help are different things. So if we can all collectively as just human beings support one another and, and just be open I feel like that moves us a little bit. Is there, so this is one of the final three questions and you kind of started um, hinting on some ways that we might be able to get active, but I like to have the guests leave the audience with an action item. So, and, and we are looking for something really small just because, you know, everyone's got a ton of things going on, but what, for the audience listening today, what can we do to support women and children in our own communities, just something small. Go on to the National Safe Parents Organization website, join, it's completely free, and you can join your state and you can find out what the group is doing and see where you can help in your own area, your own jurisdiction. Okay, perfect. Um, that's that's fantastic. And so that's national, so it's uh, nationwide. So, so it's that houses particular info on each state that people can go to. Correct. Yes. Okay. Awesome. All right. So the second of the final three is what are five words you would use to describe yourself in this current phase of your life? Empowered, compassionate, strategic, organized, and loving. Fabulous. Wonderful. I love it. And then where would you like to send people to stay connected with you, to learn more, to help if they have resources to help you? Um, so LidoAdvisors.com is my website. I also have a Facebook page and an Instagram page. So it's Lido is L-E-T-O. Lido is the Greek goddess of motherhood. So that was why I named the company that. So if you remember that part, <laughs> um, and then my email is info at LidoAdvisors.com. 
So you can reach out to me either way. And if you forget all of that, you can actually Google find a divorce coach and it would lead you to um, Tina Swithin's high conflict divorce coach page where we're listed by state. Okay. Amazing. That's fantastic. And I'll put um, your links and everything in the show notes. So anyone listening can go there. The most sincere thank you for coming on and having this conversation with me. And that's the tiniest piece. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's really, really important and really, really impactful, even on the days that it might not feel like it is. Thank you very much. Thank you, as always, for listening in today. I hope this episode helped you see a new perspective and gave you some insight on an often ignored issue. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. The opinions that were expressed on today's episode, they're mine and they're Christine's. Please do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Don't forget to check the show notes for resources and reach out if you need help. Connect with Diversity on Fire on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Diversity on Fire. If you enjoyed this episode, I would very much love your support and your feedback. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Be sure to share this conversation with others so they can hear it as well. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going. Thank you.